Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Samach Aleph, page 61. Before we even get to the material of the daf, I want to do what we have invited all of you to do, which is to take the day and dedicate it in, hopefully, in honor of people that you know. In this case, I want to dedicate today's learning in memory of uh, a friend and a co-learner, um, Dr. Dodi Tobin, she died today on the day that we're recording. Um, she was a teacher and an educator par excellence in Israel. She worked primarily at Matan, at least that's how I more knew her. I would see her at Smachot, and she always had such a real joy of life, a joy of learning. She was always talking about going forward in education and in teaching Torah. And literally, I saw her at Smachot and at, at one shiva. Um, Shalone Dali didn't know from such things. And um, this is she's just a very special, special woman with a tremendous exuberance for everything that she did. And that doesn't even reach, you know, her, her insight in teaching Torah and so on. Um, her name was Miriam Dodi Bathana Yochavid Vihuda Leib, um, Dodi Fishman Tobin, Zechanal Racha. She had been sick for some time and we thought she was better. I thought sort I certainly had hoped that she'd beat her illness and um that was not to be. So we say here, you know, may her memory for and her Torah in Am Yisrael be a blessing for all of us. Um and I want to dedicate today's daf to learning in her memory. Um, thank you, Anne, for that. I have a lot of mutual friends with her, and unfortunately, I have to say, I actually never met her, um, which is, uh, you know, weighing on me as I hear from so many of my friends what this loss has meant to them, and I hope our Torah today, uh, you know, serves something in her memory. So there's a couple of things that I want to do on this staff. I actually, I said to Anne, this is one of those staffs where I could have actually read uh, the entire DAP. So some I'll do outside of the DAP, some I'll do in the DAP. I just, please pay attention to this section that starts on the bottom of Amud Samach Bet um, and goes to the top of our DAP, which is basically a series of things that a mother could do where her behavior affects the outcome of her children, right? So this could be anywhere to where she chooses to engage in intercourse and presumably gets pregnant um, and what some of those consequences could be a variety of foods that she could eat while she is pregnant and what they, what type of children you have afterwards. Some of these outcomes are not necessarily uh, things modern learners will feel are necessarily politically correct. Uh, one of the ones that is interesting is saying that if you eat meat or drink wine, right? It says, um, that if you eat meat and drink wine, right? You'll actually have healthy children. So that's interesting because we know today uh, women are very much told to stay away from alcohol. And actually some women really cannot tolerate meat as all, at all. And supposedly that's a little bit of an evolutionary uh, thing because, um, you know, you can get food poisoning from meat. So it's just interesting to see that sort of what they consider to be a healthy diet during pregnancy does not necessarily align with some of the advice that we give uh, uh, women um, today. Um, and then it ends with an extra interesting one, to achlet droga, right? Somebody, a mother who eats um, an esrog, right? Habe rachane. She will have sweet smelling 
uh, children. Their children will be fragrant. And then they tell the story, right? The daughter of the King Shapur of Persia, um, uh, her mother ate a lot of etrogen while she was pregnant. And so they would put this baby in front of her father on top of all the spices because apparently she, this baby smelled so good uh, because the mother ate so many esrogen. And so we know, I, I sort of wanted to read this part because we know that an esrogen in particular, an etrog, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, that if you, you have an easy pregnancy, you, you know, there's all that thing about, you know, if you take the pitom off, you will get pregnant. So we see that this, the origins of these type of thinking, particularly with an etrog, uh, starts even within the Gemara itself. So I missed a lot of these things. I didn't. Nobody told me all of these things. Oh, I didn't I, learn this stuff in time. Before? Oh, I've I must have, before. but but not one. in the context of my own pregnancy. So I didn't ever learn to. I don't know what. Go find a trogim. Well, also, there's a whole thing now that actually the way etrogs are made today, because I have made etrog jelly in the past. But the way that they're made today, they're like full of chemicals. You're really not. Supposed they're to grown eat with a lot anymore. of pesticide to make them yes, beautiful. So you're like yeah. really not supposed to eat them anymore. But I have my father used to make a drug jelly. I have made it. It's actually like you bake it on chicken. But anyhow, so I don't think we can eat it as much as we used to be able to. But if there's someone out there who wants to correct me on that. I'd be thrilled to know because I'd like to go back to making my etrog jelly. You just have to grow your etrogum in your own backyard without too much pesticide. Okay, so now I got to plant an etrog tree. Okay, now we're going to move back on to the, uh, but well, before we move on to the nursing, I guess I'll just conclude with that by saying, look, it's a strange passage. It's one of those passages that if, Anne, you and I had an hour, we could totally deep dive just onto this passage. But, you know, it's worth it to check out some of them first him and see how they explain some of this uh, as well. But like, this is like sort of Gomorrah medicine, you know, tell me your medicine. Okay. Um, then we continue again with some of the marriage politics around nursing, which again, I'm just totally fascinated by because it's just interesting to see sort of like, now we sort of have this section, I'm going to name our episode as we record it. It's basically like mommy wars, right? Like we know in today's culture, there's all this thing like, did you nurse? Did you not nurse? you know, feeling guilty that you did nurse, women feeling that pressure is putting on them, that they should be nursing, you know, all of those types of things. Women not feeling good if they had to get formula or they had, you know, you had to outsource this, which is basically what wet nursing was. And so the Gemara picks up on that. And, and what I thought was, is like, oh, these are things that people have always made women feel bad about. I'm a Rav Huna, right? <laughs> so Rav Huna says, right? Badaklan Rav Huna Bar Hanina, right? Rav Huna Bar Hanina tested us. And this is what he asked. Right, if she says she wants to nurse, and the husband says he doesn't want her to nurse, right, but rather the child should go to a wet nurse, she's allowed to nurse, right? We listen to her. Because she's the one who would suffer. In other words, we know it's uncomfortable if a woman is lactating and her breasts are full and she can't actually uh, nurse. Who Omer right? Now, again, that is like one parish way of understanding it is that it's physically painful. I think we could also interpret that like it emotionally is painful, right? That you would not be entitled to nourish your child that way. But I, but most of my would say it's, 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 it's a physical pain. Who lahanik, right? Uh, he says she should nurse. And she says she doesn't want to nurse. What's the halacha, right? And then he furthers the question by saying, 
shomin lav, right? Anywhere that she is not accustomed. In other words, if the women of her family basically do not nurse, right? And they tend to do wet nurses, shomin lav, and we listen to her. We're not going to force her to nurse. If she's accustomed that women in her family do not nurse, and that generally meant they were of wealthier families because you had to pay somebody to wet nurse, right? Then we would listen to her. He orcha vuhu la orche. Let's say she's accustomed to nursing. She comes from a nursing family and he is not, right? My, what's the halacha? Batar dide azlinan, right? Oh, batar dide azlinan. Whose wishes do we follow? Basically, who do we follow, right? And so, u pashtan alei maha, right? So we answer his question from the following statement. Ola imo veina yoredet imo, right? That when a woman marries somebody, she basically goes up with him, but she does not go down with him. So in other words, what this means is, is that she elevates herself to his socioeconomic status, but she does not need to go down. So what this means is, right? So what this would mean is, is that if his family is not accustomed to nursing, she's not obligated to nursing either. In other words, she can adopt her new families, right? Her husband's newer socioeconomic status, which is higher. And if she doesn't want to nurse, she doesn't have to nurse. I'm a Rav Huna. So then Rav Huna says, right, my cry, he brings a text proof for this from uh, Bereshi chapter 20, verse 3. Right, she is a man's wife, right? So it's playing on this word, right? And it's saying that she, uh, she's, she's the aliyah of her husband, right? She ascends with her husband. And she does not descend. So he takes this clever plan words, Rav Huna, to do this thing that she sort of is allowed to adopt his socioeconomic standards when she marries him. Rabbi Elazar Amar Mihacha, Rabbi Elazar brings a different one also from Barishi, which is interesting. This is from chapter three, verse 20. Right? So here we're talking about Chava, that she was the mother of all living. She was given for living with him, but not to suffer with him. And so I think that's also very interesting. I think that could really apply to a lot of things about marriage, right? That, um, but here they mean it in a socioeconomic way, that if marrying her husband makes her life in a socioeconomic way better, obviously she's allowed to adapt those things. But again, this passage was fascinating to me because again, some of what we sort of call the mommy wars today, we even see like a hint of it back there. Like there obviously must have been discussion. Did you nurse? Did you not nurse? What kind of family did you come from? Are they a wet nurse family, not a wet nurse family? And, you know, again, there they have to work it out in terms of how does it work in the confines of a marriage? It's interesting. The Mishnah says, I think the general expectation is, is that the woman would nurse. So I think the, the fact that the Mishnah mentions that means that was probably more common. And, you know, obviously because it, it involved money, it was more of a upper class that didn't nurse. But that's not who the Mishnah, at least that we saw in the previous staff, that's not who the Mishnah is talking about. The Mishnah is probably talking about uh, more, you know, what most, what most, what the majority of people actually did uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of nursing. It's a really interesting window into, I, I want to say, not just the lives of the people back in the back in the day, but the women's lives. And it's a kind of window that we don't always see. Um, Dr. Ellie Sheva Baumgarten has made a point of using Shailot to vote on, on exactly this kind of, you know, let's talk about other issues and see how they, meaning the, the 
The halachic questions are about other issues, about can a nursing woman fast on whatever, right, under whatever circumstances. And therefore, you understand that the women were nursing or, you know, that kind of thing, where she, the social history from Shailu to Chuvot, I think she would have a great time with this particular this daft, yesterday's daft, et cetera, because it really gives us like the women's lives in a way that we don't usually see. For all that we've been talking about women all through Yavamot, it's a different kind of thing. Um, right. And again, and I think the piece of it that's difficult is like we don't really hear women's voice in it. So it's like you're you're getting information about what women's lives were like through the rabbi's perspective. Right. Like it would be interesting to hear the perspective of a woman who maybe gave up nursing because she moved into a higher socioeconomic you know, family or something like that. Those, right. Right. Those are the details I wish we had that we don't have here. OK, I'm going to now pick up. On still on Ahmed Aleph, I'm picking up some going back to the men. Um, uh, we're gonna say, you know, in addition to the mommy wars on this stuff, I would say we have some really interesting stories or interesting uh, presumptions about how things tick, how things work. So, what happens? So, why are we talking about these? We're about to get into a whole series of kind of strange details, which you'll agree with me are strange, I believe, but the question is how do we get here? And we get here because Rav Yitzchak ben Hanania was on the section right above this, where he was talking about um, specifically about what um, what a married couple, what a woman can or cannot do for her husband while she's in Nida. And we'll talk about that when we get to Masach and Nida, or it'll come up again, because it's the kind of thing that comes up here and there. But the point is that because we we mentioned the Gemara mentions Rav Yitzchak ben Chalanya, so now we've got other statements that are cited in his name. Specifically, in this case, he said that Rav Huna said that the food, all the foods, could be withheld from before the waiter, the shamash, right? Meaning the one who's a waiter at the meal waits until everybody else has eaten, and only then does he get to eat, right? Like think about uh, at a wedding when you have the staff afterwards sitting at a table, right? So this is except for meat and wine, because what would happen? The meat and wine apparently wet the appetite. And then if the waiter could not have any of the meat and wine while everybody else is eating them, he would be, you know, in too much pain and suffering from not being able to partake. So Rav Chista gets very specific about the kind of meat and the kind of wine, fatty meat, aged wine. Amareva basar shamin kol shana kula yayin yashan b'tzkufat tamuz. Rava gets even more specific. Namely, fatty meat applies all year long. The waiter should be able to partake of it. But the aged wine is only an issue during the season of tamuz, which is in the summer, because in the heat, then that aroma of the wine is just too um, inviting, too enticing. And so he has to be able to partake. I don't even know where this fits into anything, right? Meaning, aside from the fact that Rav Yitzchak ben Chanania opens it up, so then here we are in this discussion of, you know, what you get to not share with the waiter, except for these things that you must share with the waiter. Amar of Anan bar Tachlifa, Hava ka'amina ka'medu demar Shmuel, v'aytuluhu Shila da'arde. So now we're still in this cooking and these delicacies, right? Rav Anan Bar Tachlifa says he was once standing with Marshmul and they brought him a cooked dish of mushrooms. And then he says, if he had not given me any, he 
He says, I, I would have been in danger because I was suffering from such a craving for those mushrooms that were cooked so delectably that I was, you know, going to keel over from not being able to partake. So Ravashi says, well, that happened to me, right? I was standing before Rav Kahana and they brought him slices of turnip in vinegar. And if he had not given me some, I was going to be in danger, right? Because these things look so delectable. Rav Papa Amar Afilu Tamarta Dehin so Rav Papa says as follows. When you have something that has such a, a fragrant, right, that's so enticing, there's even a fragrant date, a tamar, right, a, a date, should be offered to the waiter. Because the Gemara says at the end of the day, the whole thing is offer some of everything that has a smell, a scent, or for that matter, a sharp taste, right? That the idea is that anything that is going to be so enticing like that should be shared around so that nobody is suffering from not participating in the foods, which I find to be very hospitable and very generous and, and kind of attuned to the human condition that can have its wet, you know, we can have our appetites wet so carefully by, uh, so so easily by something that is in fact tasty to other it's really other senses right it's the it's a sense of smell that suddenly you the person wants to see what does that taste like and yet i still don't exactly know where this fits in you know from a from a gemara perspective so fine the gemara goes on so there's two different sages and they both are barihi but i don't know if that means that they're brothers maybe you know this I don't know if that means that they're brothers or if they just happen to have fathers who have the same last name. It doesn't say that they're brothers here. Um, so one of them would give to the waiter from every kind of food that he would eat. And the other one would give to him only from one of the kinds of foods that he would eat. So I imagine the waiters wanted to be with a more generous more, you know, greater variety kind of uh, guy to give it out. So the Gemara says, Eliyahu spoke with this sage, but he did not speak with that sage. Meaning, the one who wasn't sharing so much with the waiter wasn't so pious. So he didn't have, he didn't merit the visitation by Eliyahu Hanavi, the prophet. Right, who would come and 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 I don't know. I guess they chatted. Right, it doesn't say what they said. Yeah, I mean, like, this is a very strange passage because, like, the notion that the one who shared with the the servant, you know, all the foods was better than the one who only gave one food—that's obvious. But that you needed to sort of like emphasize it by saying, like, "Oh, and that one got to speak to Eliyahu." That's the piece of it that's so interesting. Like, why, oh, yes. why couldn't we make the judgment about what was the, why does there have to be rewarded behavior in order to say it was the right thing to do? Correct. I'm with you. I, I, I find it fascinating that Elio Anavi shows up here at all. But yeah. you know what? He shows up in the next line as well. Hanu Taratim Chasideh. Now, in this case, the Gemara says, he calls, the Gemara calls these two, the next two pious people to begin with. Rav Mari, Rav Pinchas Ben, Rav Chista, 
marketing safay umar mechar safay. So one of them would give the waiter the food to eat before the meal, and the other would give the waiter to eat after the guests had eaten. Right, meaning either way, the waiter is getting his fair share, not too delayed. The kadim sfei aliyah mishtai b'hadei, demachar sfei lo mishtai aliyah b'hadei. And likewise, right, the one who gives sooner in the meal, Eliyahu comes and speaks to him, but the one who gives later in the meal, Eliyahu does not come and speak to him. And I think that this might actually, as strange as it as it is, it might actually hold an answer, right? Because there's nothing wrong with what the the less generous guy is doing less generous sage right I meaning he's not doing anything wrong he's just not quite as pious as the other guy so you might have thought that eliyahu and avi would come and speak to both of them why not they're at the same event right they're at the same table eliyahu is going to show up and the answer is no at some point eliyahu is going to or we <laughs> jews right draw that distinction between the thing that is really fine and well and good and that which is even better, right? Meaning even more considerate, even more pious. Um, and then I'm almost done here. Um, I feel like I should stop because we're just out of time, but I, it's really so interesting. I'm going to say this off the daf, right? So what happens is Amemar and Mazutra and Rav Ashi are sitting at the entrance of a house of, and it says literally, Isgur Malka, King Isgur. And so now we've got a butler coming by with however many foods, right? And Rav Ashi sees that Marzutra um, kind of p- pales because he really wants that food. So he takes some of the food with his finger and he gives it to Marzutra, but the Gemara says he puts it in his mouth. And of course, then the butler says, like, what did you just do? You spoiled the king's meal. How can the king eat from the food that you have poked your finger in to give to somebody else? And then the soldier said, what did you do? Why would you do this? And then he says to them, and this, I think, again, it's kind of fascinating. He says, if you're going to make such awful dishes that this is going to spoil the king's food, he's, they say to him, how could you say that? How could you say that you've, that the king's dishes are awful? He says, I saw that there was a problem here, that there was like a blemish in the meat. So then they look again, and then they don't find anything. But he takes his finger, he puts it on the food. He says, did you check here? Then they look right under his finger, and lo and behold, they found this infection or blemish or whatever. Right, Pagam. And and then they say to him, the sages say to Ravashi, you know, you were so much on a miracle. How could you do that? You didn't know that this was really gonna happen. And he said, No, I saw that there was a bad spirit hovering over the food and there was gonna be a problem, so I knew to jump in. I, I find this to be like the you know, turning the story that was kind of really inappropriate behavior on its head because now he saved the king. Um, which I find to be, you know, as I say, this whole section of this whole daf is, um, it bears a lot more unpacking than we can do today. And lastly, we've got, well, it's almost again, like, I, can, I just want to say, it's almost like he knew he did something bad and then made up this like cockamamie thing. And then it like turned out to be true. Right. But so that's why the, that's why the sages come to him and say, you couldn't rely on that cockamamie thing. That's not right. appropriate to be so much on to rely on a miracle. So, and then just lastly here, amongst these stories of both of the delicacies and the oddities, right? So we have what happens is, and again, I'm reading it, um, I'm talking about it off the duff just because of, um, in the interest of time, right? We have a Roman, Hahu Roma, Roma'a, a woman, a Roman says to a woman, Will you marry me? 
And she says to him, no, but he wants to convince her. He wants, he wants to sweet talk her. Right. Or in fact, ply her with sweets. So he goes and he brings some pomegranates and he peels them and he eats them in front of her. And I'm thinking like, maybe you should offer her them, but no, right. The idea is that he's going to eat them in front of her. He doesn't give her any of them, but because the pomegranates look so good, she gets very interested in them. Her mouth waters. She swallows all of her saliva that was, you know, that was upsetting her. And then he still doesn't give her any. And then she becomes ill and she's bloated and she's, you know, all messed up because of her great desire for these pomegranates. And then finally he says to her, if I cure you, will you marry me? So she says, yes. And he brings her pomegranates and he peels them and he eats them in front of her. And he says to her, all of that saliva that's, you know, been troubling you, spit it out. So she does that until it was something. And this is really it comes out like a green leaf and then she's cured. And I feel like here is a source that I'm sure was not actually used for um, Eric Carl's very hungry cal- caterpillar who, right? Meaning like, it's such a weird, it's like a weirdness on top of a weirdness. The delicacy here isn't, isn't something unusual, right? Meaning pomegranates are, are, are indeed delectable, but it's just the fruit. It's not about the preparation. It's not about anything beyond that. Um, we can we can interpret and overinterpret the value or the meaning of pomegranates, you know, till the cows come home. But in this case, the thing that cures her is not. And when I first read it, I thought he was going to give her the pomegranates to eat, right? But no, he says spit out the saliva that you've kind of built up in your ex- estimation and excitement over these pomegranates, and then you'll be cured. And now she's going to marry this guy. It's a strange gemara. Uh, very strange. I'm going to move on because I don't really have a good insight and we still have a lot more to do on this uh, DAP. So we have a new mission here that I want to point out. Uh, but there's also this very strange passage that we didn't talk about where they get sidetracked about these two rabbis, Rav Malkio versus Rav Malkia. And they give like a great mnemonic for like differentiating between their teachings. And I just think this is like one of these passages that shows you how really a lot of this was all an oral tradition. We read it from printed books, but that's not how the Mishnah and the Gemara started. It was all memorized. And so this is passages that speaks to that, right? Like there were two names. They were very similar. They obviously could have gotten pronounced the same way or gotten confused. And so the Gemara takes the time to say like, no, this one learned these things and that's the mnemonic to know his teachings. And this one with a slightly different name said these taught these things. And this is the mnemonic to, to, you know, remember his teachings. Okay. Now we move on to a strange Mishnah. So a man comes and he makes a nether that basically he will not have sex with his wife anymore. So Beit Shammai says he basically is allowed to maintain this for up to two weeks. But after that, he has to divorce her and has to give her her ketubah. And Beit Shammai says it's only one week. And then the Gemara goes into sort of what should be uh, regular or normative uh, frequency of, uh, of sex in the marriage relationship. And again, I think this is pretty forward thinking uh, that the Mishnah wants to commit this, right? So students can leave their homes and travel, right, basically to learn Torah without their wives for up to 30 days, without their wives' permission for up to 30 days. So they can leave for up to 30 days. Ha-polim shabbat right? Workers, it's up to a week. 
right? The set interval that we talk about in the Torah, okay? Somebody who's basically like a, a, a man of leisure, basically, right? Is expected, you know, is expected uh, to engage uh, in intercourse or have a sexual relationship with his wife once a day. Right? Workers, it's twice a week. Hachamarim, achad b'shabbat. Donkey drivers, it's once a week. Hagamalim, achad l'shoshim Camel drivers, right? Because they presumably traveled much farther distances. That's what you use camels for. Is for 30 days. Hasapanim, sailors. Achad l'shishim chodashim is once every six months. Zivrei Rabbi Eliezer. And that's what this was a teaching of Rabbi Eliezer. So again, very interesting that this all has a halakha to it. That yes, it's listed as one of the three things that a husband has to provide for his wife, which we saw in the previous Mishnah, right? Clothing and food and uh, and and to maintain that sexual. Mishnah gets into a detail of um, how frequent does that actually have to be? And so the Gemara wants to explain how does Beit Shammai get to two weeks and how does Beit Hillel get to one week? My time at the Beit Shammai, Gamri Mio Lezit Nekeba, right? So he learns this from when a woman gives birth to a female, she's considered to be tame for up to two weeks. This is a halachan in chapter, uh, Yudbet, chapter 12, right? So in other words, 12 weeks of, you know, 12 weeks is not considered to be sort of like too much to ask the wife to do, all right? Uh, and Beit Hillel just takes the time that a woman is tame for a male, uh, baby, which is for one week. So in other words, what they're looking at is, is that they're taking a standard of other times where there's sort of forced abstinence and they're using that as a model. So Beit Shammai looks at the a baby girl period of time, which is two weeks. Beit Hillel looks at a baby boy, which is one, which is one week. Now, again, we don't, because of the way rabbinic law is now with some of these halachot, it is not usually two weeks or one week. Uh, it, it's usually more like in a five to six week period. So that's sort of, you know, interesting to see that. So the question is, so why doesn't Beit Hillel also derive this halacha from giving birth to a baby girl? Right? If they derive it from a woman who gives birth, right? Why don't you just say that Beit Hillel derive this from the halacha of a menstruating woman. Why does he have to say it? It's from a zakhar. Because according to the Torah itself, Raisa, the state of a nida, of a menstruating woman, was actually only one week. Now, because we say that most women, derabanan, right? When we get to the Roshonim, it's that women, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into more later on, but not today fully, um, that women uh, are not necessarily in a state of nida of a del Risa state, right? Because we say that women today don't understand or don't know they're bleeding in the same way that it would actually be nida and they maybe can't distinguish between different states of bleeding. So we end up actually with 12 days. But again, I'm not going to get, that would be a whole podcast in itself. But the point is from del Risa, straightforward nida should only be one week. So therefore, the Gemara says, but my come up what are they actually fighting? You know, what do they disagree about? Right, one holds, and this is Beit Hello, that we, and we've seen this very often in this Masachet, that we learn common from common, right? 
So in other words, we derive the halacha of how long we allow a husband to be abstinent from his wife, uh, from the halacha, right? You know, from, uh, uh, you know, uh, from this halacha of, of, of Niza and the Zachar, right? Umar and one sage, and this is Beit Shammai, right, holds it from what caused it, okay? In other words, what caused the vow. And so, in other words, both the case of childbirth and a vow is a case where something was caused either by... Um, in other words, ...made the baby be born because he impregnated his wife, or he took this vow. But menstruation wouldn't fall under that category because that's not something that he actually causes. Then Rav and Shmuel are going to get into more of a machlokas about uh, what exactly they are arguing about. Um, but it's a very, very strange, uh, it's a very, very strange Mishnah. And even this machlokas between Beit Hello and Beit Shammai about how they get to this time itself is also interesting. But I think the point is, is to say you can claim, you can you can want or vow abstinence, but it can only be sort of at a more reasonable time frame. Okay. Um, I think that's an interesting, I just want to make one comment that I think we need to close, but I think the idea that you can want, or your last point here, Yardina, right? That you could decide to make a vow of abstinence when we talk about how Judaism is so different from Christianity when it comes to sexual relations. I think the idea that, you know, there's a limit to how much you could forswear, right? The sexual intimacy when it's part of your marriage and so on. I think that's also an important point that we're not going to spend enough time talking about today. Right. I, you know, but it's, uh, look, there was so much on this staff and we really, I feel like we didn't go through the staff as well as I would have liked to. So I hope we just gave everybody a lot of interesting things to think about here. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this full range of DAF. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.